The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. Thursday, July 21st, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The congressional hearings into January 6th have shown us that there's still hope. Even within the ranks of the Trump administration, as young staffers looking around them say, this just isn't right. But not all young staffers. A former aide to Peter Navarro, a young man named Garrett Ziegler, gave testimony to the committee on Tuesday. And immediately afterwards, as per youth culture, took to a live stream to tell us his real thoughts. Because I'm not a fame fag and the world's not revolving around me and I don't expect people to, uh, you know, to set aside time every day to, to listen to me. I still don't understand how Ben Shapiro has people who listen to him every single day. I mean, I can't listen to that guy for five minutes. I don't know how, I mean, I know he's, he's selling solar yarmulkes, but I don't know how anybody listens to that guy. They did not reek of decency. Solar yarmulkes. Perhaps as a defense of Jewish space lasers, haven't figured that one out yet. Here was Ziegler on actually patriotic members of the Trump administration. The other young people in the White House are total hoes in thoughts like Cassidy Hutchinson in this Alyssa Farrah hoebag. Oh, Nelly. Not nice. Not truth. Not social. But I'm sure it'll play well on truth social. Now, if you're under 34 years old, you probably said that's terrible. And if you're over 40, you probably said that's terrible. But um, uh, what's a thought? I too had that thought. Thought, research and not life experience, shows is a word originated by rapper Chief Keef. It's said to stand for that hoe over there, T-H-O-T, and is pronounced thought. So that makes it a pejorative word created from an acronym utilizing an existing pejorative word. I don't love that. It's a little like a recursive acronym, which is when the individual letters of an acronym make double reference to the organization or program. So here, here's an example. Remember Cash for Clunkers, right? The official name of that was the CARS program, but CARS stood for the Car Allowance Rebate System. So the first C in CARS was CAR. I deducted 15 points for that. Thought is a, therefore, specific type of hoe. Or actually, it's a specific location of a hoe. It's like MapQuest for hoes, all in a handy four-letter word. I said MapQuest for those of my demographic who have to have thought explained to them. And the necessity of the word thought, it becomes apparent when you realize it was invented by rappers. Hoe only rhymes with about a thousand words. Thought opens up to a few thousand more. And words are tools. I can see why this one was created. Plus, I'm intrigued by this idea of insult plus location equals new word. Thought being that hoe over there. How about Asor, asshole sitting on a recliner? Or Shuab, schmuck hiding under a blanket. Then, of course, there's the Jawashib, the jackass with a summer home in the Berkshires. As for young Garrett Ziegler, who also called the January 6th commission anti-Christian, anti-white Bolsheviks, well, that guy said on Truth Social, quote, I cherish women, and the people in my life will testify to that. And for the record, Cassidy Hutchinson is a hoe. He rejects all criticism and reserves his right to speech. To have it any other way would be nothing short of a thought crime. On the show today... 
a constructive, I'd even say instructive example of a cabinet official testifying before Congress, out of which we get the absolute lowest moment of stupidity. But first, well, yesterday we talked about the concept of cowardice. Today, memory, and specifically the part of memory which entails letting go of thoughts. Big existential human traits and processes here on The Gist, as today we ponder forgetting, often seen as a regrettable byproduct of age or a failure of the mental process. In fact, forgetting is necessary. Scott Small is the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia University and the author of the book, Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. He talks about the mechanics of forgetting and how it helps shape us. Scott Small, up next. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. We are told to never forget. We're told that those who don't remember their history are doomed to repeat it. We attend memorials, erect memorials, and take off on Memorial Day. But forgetting is not only necessary, it allows us to function, to focus, and this is really important, to let go. Scott Small is the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia University and is the author of the book, Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. Dr. Small, welcome to The Gist. Thank you very much. So you're a mechanic. You describe yourself as a mechanic. Neurons contain nano machines that are dedicated to the construction of memory. But I would say you're also a philosopher, a philosopher about what memory means. What's the breakdown, though? Is the vast majority of your day job wrenching uh, under the hoods of our brains? And then is just a certain percentage of it explaining things to the public in a book or an interview like this, but maybe that percentage gets more attention? Well, Mike, not, not to start uh, with flattery, but that's maybe the, the best question I've been asked in many, in many, many years. Because in fact, my day job is under the hood uh, looking at brains, trying to solve the devastation of Alzheimer's and related disorders. But in my night gig, I do consider myself philosophically inclined. I read a lot of philosophy, formal philosophy. I read a lot of books that are philosophically inclined. And in some ways, I'd like to believe, and one always has to worry about the retroscope, but I'd like to believe that my first interest in memory as a teenager was motivated by the philosophical question of why memory. Well, in the field of philosophy, actually having some um, detailed information is now the trend, and I think it's a good trend, uh, rather than just you know sitting down and contemplating the nature of the cosmos, actually knowing about brain functions does inform and has been embraced by philosophy. Yes, absolutely. And, and one of the things that's re-emerging, and in philosophy, if you read enough, you always realize that it's all rediscovery. I've just been rereading my Montagna, and he was all about the benefits of forgetting to be uh, a better thinker, to not get uh, more down by detail, to be creative. Uh, and so it was all there 500 years ago. 
as you note in the book, I, I think even chapter one starts off with your least favorite analogy for the mind and remembering, which is the steel trap mind. But everything that we understand about memory is an analogy and the computer's a really good analogy. But can you talk about the purpose of forgetting is the best analogy pruning, sculpting, or something else? Yes. And I actually start with a, with a metaphor and an analogy as a way to kind of inoculate against our inclinations to use metaphors. But that's normal. Every word at lo some level might be metaphorical. I think inoculation in that sentence might have been. <laughs> Thank you. And actually, I try not to use medical uh, uh, metaphors. Uh, Proust loved using medical metaphors. But the, um, the, in, in terms of what you're asking, Yes, the the better way to think of the way to have a successful mind is a mind that is able to have the raw material of memory, but then to have the forgetting to sculpt and prune it. Otherwise, you just have these sort of clod-like blocks of information that are not helpful, that can actually be detrimental. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't memory work well as an old-growth forest? Why do we need it to be pruned? So um, as an old growth forest, you would potentially get bogged down by the thickness of the forest. You wouldn't be able to crisply see uh, details. You wouldn't be able to easily make decisions. Uh, you wouldn't be able to soar above the forest eagle-like and be creative. How does the memory know what to prune? What's the determinant of what's important, what stays, and what goes? It's a great question. I think the, 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 there is the mechanics of how memories are formed, by which I mean cells in a dish, neurons in a dish, right? That's reductionism, which can be absurd, but in this case, it, it answers the first approximation to your question. There's a certain logic to how memories are formed and why they are then pruned and forgotten. And it, for example, has to do with, do two things happen simultaneously, right? That is going to engage the logic, the code of maybe it's worth remembering this. In kind, if two things happen out of sync, you might, your, your, your neurons have built into them the mechanics of thinking, well, this is probably not important. But now if you expand this out to the true complexity of the brain, the systems, the networks, there are other forms of logic. The ability to um, realize that one piece of information overcomes another. So it's not just erasure, it's replication on top of the uh, erasing. So there, I'm not sure if that was completely clear, Mike, but there are different levels, cells, networks, the whole brain, each level has its own built-in mechanisms uh, that uh, encourage our brains to forget to, and to remember. And then, you know, the quick subtext in the book is that sometimes fails. So those mechanics yeah. can break down. Right. So is our, so you talk about pathological forgetting, which is either Alzheimer's in the extreme or another disease like that, or just simply tip of your tongue syndrome, inability to access certain words, being worse at Jeopardy when you're 60 than when you were 55, that sort of thing. Are all those failures on a continuum or are they different kinds of failures? So when I forget, oh, the, you know, the guy who starred with the one from Succession, no, and the other thing, is that very much like an Alzheimer's patient's forgetting, or is it just showing up in a similar way, but they're really different mechanisms at play? 
if we consider the inability to remember an actor's name in our 20s and 30s a form of failure, although the book tries to argue it's not a failure, but it's a, mm-hmm. uh, let's con- consider that a failure, that is categorically different than the failure that my Alzheimer patients experience. Now, the complexity is it can manifest similarly, right? So my patients have that same complaint. It, however, happens more frequently. It It is not like you'll quickly think, of that actor's name later. They can never recall that. So uh, on the phenomenology, it might seem similar, but it's a lot worse. And within the brain, one is a true pathological breakdown of the normal memory and forgetting mechanisms, whereas the other is just the normal uh, uh, mechanisms that we are all born with. Right. And so that's good. And let's concentrate because you do in a recent essay that you wrote for the New York Times. Let's concentrate on certainly the non-pathological Alzheimer's kind of forgetting. We will forget much of the pandemic. That's a good thing. So I think many people who read the headline or even read the piece, maybe halfway through the piece they were convinced, would take to it. I mean, the reason the headline works as a headline is it tweaks your expectations. You know, people will certainly come to the premise of the piece and say, well, isn't it a shame if we were to forget forget the pandemic? Then we wouldn't learn the lessons of the pandemic. But uh, I would say that, is it such a shame? There's no real evidence that we collectively have learned the lessons of the pandemic as it is. The title of that essay, I wrote the essay, I didn't write the title. And I think, and I was okay with the title because it was a little provocative. But if anyone read the article, it's clear that I first state clarity because I'm a doctor who was in Manhattan in a center that was the center of the epicenter in the beginning days. I've seen the ravages. I've seen uh, my healthcare providers step up. So I developed the idea that it's the balance of memory and forgetting. And we absolutely should remember a lot from the pandemic or the epidemic. We should, um, we, should, we should remember in our textbooks how to respond better. We should commemorate the bravery of the first responders. And we should certainly memorialize those uh, who, who passed. Uh, so that is the sort of obvious part of the memory forgetting balance. The less obvious part, and the reason why I think the editors of the New York Times wanted me to write the, the, the piece, is that we tend to over-obsess on remembering everything. We want to have what's called photographic edictic memory. We want to have total recall. That's actually a bad thing, and it's illustrated uh, in the pandemic because uh, the easiest examples I ga- gave there and most relevant are emotional memories. None of us should or want to remember uh, the horrors of the beginning of, 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 of the pandemic in perpetuity, in total recall, that would be uh, sentencing ourselves to a life of PTSD. Well, is that what PTSD is, uh, associating the emotional with the factual recitation of the event? I do, I think, say in the piece, and I say it in the book, I'll say it now, I apologize. One should be careful about simplifying complex disorders, but most PSD experts agree with that. PTSD is a disorder of too much emotional memory. We can't shake it day in, day in, day out. It creeps into our nightmares. Uh, we, we quickly associate 
a loud sound with a, with a previous event. So PTSD is a canonical disorder of too much emotional memories where our, our brain simply can't let go. So yes. When PTSD is treated or is coped with, does what occurs that the person still maintains the memory of the events in terms of the factual recitation and remembering the images, but just doesn't feel them? Or is it that there is a total dampening of all the memories of the event and even the facts of it become faded if they're PTSD? Yeah, no, that's a that's a really important distinction, Mike. So in, in fact, back to the article I read, uh, we should remember facts. You know, we should remember the Alamo. We should remember 9-11 absolutely on the facts because facts are always helpful. But in the book and in real life, in the book I describe what's true in real life and in, in that memories are actually a mixture of facts and emotions. And so it turns out that the brain processes the emotional part of memories and the factual part of memories separately. And in PTSD, it's the emotional mechanisms of memory and forgetting that are faulty. So it's perfectly okay, I would say, and I would in fact encourage it, right? right? Always learn from history, never repeat it. Remember the facts, but it's important to let the brain forget the emotional valence. So when you didn't uh, have PTSD from your Syrian war experience, was it that the, the emotions and the facts never wedded in the first place? No, they completely wedded in the first place. And uh, I do describe how in the first months after the war, um, this is a war that I, I served in the Israeli military, um, uh, we all, all the band of brothers, the soldiers, <clears throat> were engaged in re-experiencing the memory in its full bloody gory uh, emotions and details, but that gradually those of us who did not have PTSD were able for uh, you know, natural and I think healthy reasons to let the, uh, the fang of the memory, the, the hurt of the memory uh, to diminish. And so we yeah. can still remember all the details. In fact, uh, that the battle that I describe in that book just celebrated its fifty its fortieth anniversary just last week. And so I got a lot of calls from journalists who wanted to know the details. The details are still there, but I can describe it without being a mess. What I'm thinking of is the testimony of uh, Christine Blasey Ford and how she bowled people over by using terms like. Um, the laughter was indelible in the hippocampus, and she talked about the levels of norepinephrine and epinephrine in the brain and coding it and locking traumatic memories onto her brain. Traumatic memories. If, as you just said, the facts and the emotions are encoded in two different places. So not to in any way cast doubt or even weigh in on factually what happened. Is there something about her testimony that maybe misled us to think, well, she must be remembering uh, exactly correctly, when in fact, maybe what she was describing was that she was recalling the emotion with good recall? Well, that's a complicated question for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think when people, the, you know, the first thing to point out is that if I ask you or anyone to recall a memory from many years ago, it's never a snapshot uh, it's right. always over Especially time. if literally there are snapshots of that. We tend to remember those photographs more than the experience. Yeah. Not all is part yeah. of it. Um, but 
it is also true that some people uh, who have had bad experiences can accurately reflect the pain they suffered. So uh, it, it's I, I don't think it's one or the other. I think yeah. people can uh, recount and re-experience uh, the, the, the horrors of a traumatic experience. Absolutely. So your whole book is essentially, I mean, there are many different chapters and you kind of have um, an expert in the specific uh, subcategory of neurology uh, guide you or guide us throughout. It's very well done. But if I took away a big lesson, it was something like, we do need to forget. We certainly, that is a, it is a benefit to us that we're able to forget and it's useful. I then said to myself, but you know, we really need to forget the right things. We don't want to forget the wrong things and it's good that we could discard the proper things. I don't know what the right things are. That's always subjective. But as an expert, do you have any insights on what are the right sort of things that we'd be best off with forgetting and what are the things that are that it's important to hold on to? Yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll come back then to the distinction, which is of course slightly forced dichotomized between emotional and factual information. I think we all intuitively know that we need to forget to forgive. I think any person who's been married or with a couple for many years knows that without some form of forgetting and letting go, it would be really, really hard to maintain a long-term friendship relationship. So on the emotional part, I think it's a little bit more intuitive. On the factual part, uh, let me make another distinction. So there's, you know, if I ask you to recall a childhood memory, you, you'll give me the details, but it turns out that we need to forget even in the primary processing of the memory, and, and that gets to the chapter on things like creativity, uh, because if our uh, factual information, our associations of multiple elements were really stapled with, with steel, we would never have the eureka moment that most artists describe uh, that uh, typifies uh, the need to balance memory with forgetting. Right. In other words, there's no, there'd be no room for insight. Th there'd be no room for insight. Right. We'd be stenographers. Right. We would be chiselers, and uh, and that's not, and that, and that's not how. And and so, in 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 that chapter was very interesting to to speak to Jasper Johns, to speak to other artists, to read testimonials that um, people sometimes think that the creative moment is a somehow. Um, spark out of the blue. It's not. It's actually immersing yourself with a lot of information. So that's the memory part, but then making sure that that information is not uh, concretely connected. Because if you had those concrete connections, there would be no playfulness, no ability to make the unexpected connection. So it's the unexpected connection that already exists in your brain. That is what most people consider creativity. So it, it's not necessarily answering your question, Mike. I apologize. You'll help me qualify if I'm not. But what I'm, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm getting at is that it's not just, okay, here's the list of things, facts I remember. Let's try to delete X, Y. I think the deep point of the book is recognizing that your forgetting is normal. The one that you're born with that we all have, it's normal and it's healthy in acting together with your memory because without it, uh, one's life would be miserable, hurtful, and sort of boring. Scott Small is the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia University. His book is Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. Dr. Small, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike, for the great questions.
And now the spiel in which I want to play a few clips for a longer duration than I usually play clips. It's okay because the critique I'm engaging in points a finger at distraction and the perverse incentives of media, partisanship, and yeah, our own dopamine chasing brains. So first, here's a statement Joe Biden made in April. The occasion was Katanji Brown Jackson having just been confirmed to the Supreme Court. It's 50 seconds. Afterwards, I'll ask you if your reaction matched mine. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in the foot, 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 excuse me, the foothills of the Himalayas with Xi Jinping, traveling with him. I guess we traveled 17,000 miles when I was vice president. I don't know that for a fact. And uh, we were sitting alone. I had an interpreter and he had an interpreter. And he looked at me in all seriousness. He said, can you define America for me? And I said what many of you heard me say for a long time. I said, yes, I can. In one word, possibilities. Possibilities. That in America, everyone should be able to go as far as their hard work and God-given talent will take them. And possibilities. We're the only ones. That's why we're viewed as the ugly Americans. We think anything's possible. So you know on the show I've been critical of Joe Biden's declining rhetorical skills, but what I heard wasn't bad. He stumbled for a moment, but got his point across, had some imagery, some name dropping, a little humor. If you're a denizen of a certain corner of our culture, however, that is not how you heard it, or that is not even what you heard. You heard the clip played right up to the part where he got tongue-tied saying the foothills of the Himalayas. This seems the sort of stumble attributable to a stutter, but even if not, he quickly recovered, unless it wasn't in your interest to know or to hear it that way, then you just saw the stumble over and over and over again. All right, you're saying, okay, negative partisanship is such that there is a market for that. Some people are just going to hate on Joe Biden. The problem is some people are in the U.S. Congress. So on Tuesday, Pete Buttigieg was testifying before a House subcommittee on the subject implementing the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. That's when Troy Nels, Republican of Texas, pounced. He asked Buttigieg hours into discussion of mileage and rebates, the power grid, catalytic converters. He asked him what would be the one word that he'd use to describe America. Buttigieg said, home. Fair enough, said the congressman, then followed it up with this. This is how President Biden described America in one word. Nels produced a blow-up of an alphabetic approximation of Biden's stumble that I played for you. The White House transcript captured it as, I was in the foot hill, dash, foot, dash, excuse me, in the foothills of the Himalayas. Congressman Nels's large sign held behind him by a staffer rendered the truly inconsequential stumble as a 34-letter-long nonsense garble. Nels then proceeded with other charges. He shakes hands with ghosts and imaginary people. He falls off bicycles. Even at the White House Easter celebration, the Easter Bunny had to guide him back into his safe place. All of these were accompanied by young staffers holding up blown-up pictures, one of the president at the Easter egg roll, the other of Biden having turned the wrong direction after a speech. Should we be invoking the 25th Amendment, Nels asked Buttigieg. No, Buttigieg answered when he could get a word in, and he added, the question's insulting and the president is vigorous and extremely engaged. Okay, so a foolish, attention-seeking question 
easily batted away. Let's move on. Sigh, but move on. Just as Biden's tiny three-month-old slip meant nothing, so should have Nels's attack. It's not how it played out. The exchange, really, the charge, was widely covered. Not just everywhere on the right, but also in the Washington Post, USA Today, People Magazine. And I'm not against any event that actually happened being reported on, but when I tell you it was the only thing reported on, that is something I'm against. This hearing, you see, was actually an excellent example of how a congressional hearing should work, which isn't the brilliant secretary who had an agenda I support, goes in, lays out his unassailable reasons. Everyone says, you're right, you're smart. No, not that at all. I just ask you to note how Nell's fellow Republicans questioned Buttigieg testy at times, but on the issues actually pertinent to the very important subject of transitioning our entire auto fleet. Here was Kentucky Republican Thomas Massey. This clip runs about a minute. An American household would use 25 times as much electricity for their electric cars they would for their refrigerator. Do you think it would strain the grid if everybody plugged in 25 refrigerators in every household? Well, if we didn't make any upgrades to the grid, sure. I mean, if we had yesterday's grid with tomorrow's cars, it's not going to work. It's one of the reasons why we believe that infrastructure includes electrical infrastructure and argued for that to be included, as it thankfully was in the bipartisan law. Do you, do you think by 2030, which is when Biden says 50% of uh, cars sold should be electric, do you think the grid will be capable of handling electric cars? It's going to need to be, and we're working with the Department of Energy every day. We've established a joint office of energy and transportation to map out some of the needs. Obviously, some of this gets outside of my lane, and we've been discussing with, uh, for example, the truck stops that are uh, looking at what their Buttigieg's answers got a little detailed, but good. It was productive. No one got owned in that exchange. Massey, who graduated from MIT with a degree in electrical engineering, wasn't placated. He expressed pessimism that the grid could ever be upgraded to that degree, but he couldn't have asked for a better back and forth with real substance. Other Republicans were even more critical of Buttigieg in areas less nitty gritty than the grid. Here was Republican Carlos Jimenez of Florida. Again, it's a little under one minute clip. It begins with Jimenez asking Buttigieg about calculating when the price of a gas powered car would be the same as an electric powered vehicle. Break even. And then, by the way, have you figured in the 10 year lifespan of a battery that you have to change? So if you have 100. Yes, we have. I mean, the, okay. the estimates that are showing that this is reaching parity and pointing toward a savings depending on the model, do account for things like that. But, but you would agree that the higher the, ga- the price of gas, then the, the faster you reach that parity. Of course, the more pain we are all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. It's why we're hoping you and your colleagues might reconsider opposing the reduction of EV upfront prices with tax credits. So, so you're, you're saying the more pain we have, the more benefit we're going to get. Of course. I think no. that's what I heard you say. You said the more pain that we <laughs> no, have. That's, that's what you heard yeah, me say. That's what I heard you say. I know you want me to say it have. so bad, but, but okay. honestly, sir, what we're saying is that we could have no pain at all by making EVs cheaper for everybody, and we'd love to have your support on that. Not a softball, not patty cake. Jimenez went with him with a good attempt at a gotcha. Buttigieg parried, but it was all relevant to the question at hand. Good answers to tough questions. It's a model for how two opposing sides of an argument should engage. No one there threw the agenda out the window or presented big dumb pictures for the audience. You know, 
the, the people that ain't too good at understanding arguments without a picture. No one tossed aside the very purpose of the hearing, and no one else got coverage. Just Nels and his pictures. The Washington Post and USA Today covered exactly one question from the hearings, and it was, is the president addle-brained? I'm not saying the committee was the epitome of political functionality, but it was constructive. It regarded a legitimate debate, and the debate's about how much public funds should be given to subsidize an industry that's fairly successful, absent subsidization. This is what we should be talking about. The debate was enjoined. The system worked fairly well. And by system, I don't don't just mean the political system. There represented was industry addressing a market need. American innovation coming into play to work with the government to solve a hugely important problem, not bad. But instead, what we get is some horseshit over Joe Biden misstating a word and an Easter Bunny visual. You know, when we look at the insurrection of January 6th and worry about radical elements within our country, it's warranted. It's warranted to worry. When we further note that later that day, 138 House Republicans still voted to decertify the Pennsylvania vote, that says something extremely troubling about the system as a whole. It's right to be concerned. But when there's a hearing that works and 99% of the participants and observers leave more edified than when it started, but it's still portrayed as empty theatrical combat, That is terrible, and that is terribly unfair. I mean, what's the theory? That everything we ever talk about will be just angry, ridiculous nonsense that gets us nowhere, but also that we know underneath there will be progress and substance. We'll just never mention any of that. And still, things will work out. But I'm not sure they will. One sign that America is falling apart is that the only stories we ever tell are of America falling apart. We just don't want to tell the other stories. I think we want to hear them, but it's hard to know the stories even exist. So if I had to describe America in one word, I would have once said resilient, progressing. If you indulge me with some hyphens up to the challenge. Now I have a different answer. Distracted. That's it for today's show. Corey Wara pays attention as assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is on task as The Gist senior producer. Michelle Pesca, the hats she wears are plentiful. As COO and more of Peachfish Productions, The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs> 